This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. In the past half century, more people have walked on the moon than across the threshold of number 10 as a new Prime Minister. And now we get another new PM to take that one small step, having triumphed in the not very edifying contest to replace Boris Johnson. They'll have barely 24 hours to move into Downing Street. The process is daunting, brutal, emotional, exhausting. Decisions, mistakes made in the first few hours can come to define a premiership. So what happens when you become Prime Minister? I can remember David phoning Sam up and saying, love, you better get your frock ready, we're going to see the Queen. The people who work in Number 10 have lined up the corridor to clap out the outgoing Prime Minister. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's barbaric. That same group of people, as we went in, had been there an hour before, weeping as John Major left. I always think it's a particular kind of torture to make the first act of a Prime Minister, literally within 30 seconds, this extraordinarily dramatic act of handwritten notes only to be opened in the event of an apocalypse. In my case it was the President of the United States, Barack Obama, saying, uh, well done David, enjoy this moment, it's all downhill from here. Judith Wound got fired via someone shouting in the corridor. I think Boris had made some unwise promises to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I, I was, I mean, frank is perhaps not the right word, but I was somewhat overawed, yeah. Now our system is mad, whether it's the long slog of a general election campaign or even the longer slog of an internal party contest, we put our wannabe leaders through a gruelling, relentless crisscrossing of the country, glad-handing the electorate and smiling for the cameras, and just when they and their teams are utterly exhausted, they march straight into number 10. No rest for the wicked or the victor. Tony Blair once told me that no amount of planning can prepare you for the realisation that you're about to run the country. You're never ready when you come straight in yeah. off the back of um, 18 years of opposition. In that sense, you're, ne you're never ready. You know, the one thing you realise the moment you come in to government is that campaigning to be the government is completely different from governing as the government. And, you know, there is nothing really that prepares you quite for that if you haven't been in that position before. 
For David Cameron in 2010, there was the psychodrama of five days of coalition talks before it became clear that he would indeed be Prime Minister. Gabby Burton, the then Tory leader's press secretary, recalls sitting at the leader of the opposition's office in Parliament. And then it all happened so quickly. I mean, it was literally like, I can remember David phoning Sam up and saying, I, you know, it was, it, it was at the table where he said, love, you better get your frock ready, we're going to see the Queen in about a couple of hours. And there was pandemonium. That summons from the monarch can be the moment the idea of being Prime Minister becomes reality. Margaret Thatcher wrote that she could remember an odd sense of loneliness as well as anticipation when I received the telephone call which summoned me to the palace. In July 2019, preparing for the big job he'd waited his whole life for, Boris Johnson went for a run. Waiting for him at Admiralty House was his long-standing media advisor, Will Walden. My first image of him was the sweaty Boris Johnson <laughs> that I know post-run with his security himself sort of barging through the door. Uh, and I think the first thing he said to me was, oh, morning, Maisie, what are you doing here? It was like, you know, hang on a minute, you're about to be Prime Minister. What do you think I'm doing here? Only now, in this quiet before the storm, does it start to dawn just how big a deal this is? And the only time I saw him really sort of conscious of the fact of what was about to happen was after he'd gotten changed and, and had to go upstairs to put the suit on and i remember him coming down and he the first time where i thought the size of the responsibility that he's about to take on hit him you could see it in his shoulders he was a bit and i had to do some some real pepping and a kind of pointing at him just sort of saying you know you've got to get this right not just the speech but the whole you know you're, you're about to meet her majesty it's a it's a, it's a big deal now, it's often said that the new Prime Minister goes to Buckingham Palace, or in this week, Balmoral, to kiss hands with the monarch. Not so, says someone who'd know, David Cameron. Kissing hands thing isn't, that's not quite right. You, you, when you join the Privy Council, you have to kiss hands. When you form a government, there's no kissing involved. You, <laughs> you go and you, you know, seek permission to form a government. It's so much accepted that that's why you're going, that that conversation barely even takes place but that's that's sort of what's that's what's happening and and obviously in my case in 2010 because the coalition hadn't we hadn't absolutely pulled it all together before gordon brown resigned i was in this position of sort of saying um i'd like to form a government i can't tell you exactly what sort of government it's going to be i hope it's going to be a coalition but but can i get back to you and as i was (laughs) doing that i was thinking this is although i imagine the queen has seen everything this is actually something in her reign that is novel. What's going through your mind on the way to Buckingham Palace is really, um, you can't believe it's happening. You can't believe you're going to see the Queen, but you're also worrying hugely about what you're gonna say on the steps of Downing Street. With the world's media gathered opposite number 10 and news helicopters hovering overhead, the narrow street creates a cauldron of noise. Will Walden couldn't even hear the speech he'd helped write for Boris Johnson. It's really interesting because when you watch the television pictures back, you can't hear it. But in the street, it was deafening because of the protests outside. So, after delivering the speech, waving for the cameras, the new Prime Minister makes their way to the door of their new home, new office, new power base. Waiting behind the door will be the Cabinet Secretary. The most senior civil servant in the country welcomes the new Prime Minister and their spouse, while others might be lurking in the shadows. Cummings had arrived. We were all dressed pretty smartly. Dominic had decided to turn up in his best um, T-shirt and jeans and, and trainers. Boris walks back in through the door. He's handshaking with Mark Sedwell, the Cabinet Secretary, and beautifully positioned is Dominic, stood between the two of them at the back as a, sort of this dark arts guy you know, on, on his phone. 
The changeover is then carried out with ruthless efficiency. Gus O'Donnell was cabinet secretary under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. The people who work in number 10 have lined up the corridor to clap out the outgoing Prime Minister. It's important. And that's quite traumatic. You know, they might have been there for a decade or more and you've known them well, you know their style, you know the way they work. So you say goodbye to them. Then you've got a very frenetic hour when you're rearranging the furniture, you're trying to work out precisely what a new Prime Minister might want. There's a whole set of issues. So it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's barbaric, actually, is the word I'd use. Former Cameron press aide Gabby Burton agrees. Yeah, you're walking into their office. It's like sort of walking to kind of, you know, it's a bit mawkish, really. So they, you can sort of always still, you know, smell them. Like, I don't mean that rudely, but, you know, it's kind of, they, they've only just left. And the pizza boxes were still in the bin. You know, Gordon Brown, we went into, obviously, we all sort of trooped into Gordon Brown's office to see where it all happened. And the, the table had sort of scratch marks and sort of indentation marks where we imagined sort of mobile phones had been sort of <laughs> smashed into it. Uh, I'm sure none of that was the case. The tradition of clapping in the Prime Minister is born not out of servitude to new masters, but has a more practical purpose. In the pre-television age, it was a chance for Downing Street staff to see the new PM and their team up close so they could recognise them about the place. Katie Perrier entered number 10 in 2016 as Theresa May's Director of Communications. It's very noisy, uh, there's lots of clapping, there's lots of back patting and people are realising that we're here now. It's now time to get on with it. Angie Hunter, who was Tony Blair's advisor and gatekeeper, says this moment illustrates the professionalism of the civil service. Literally... That same group of people, as we went in, had been there an hour before, weeping. Yeah. As John Major left, and Norma, you know, they would have walked, you know, they, they line the corridor from the door down to the Prime Minister's office. It's quite a long corridor yeah. in, in, in Downing Street. Lovely corridor, it's got windows, so it's light. And they had clapped out uh, John Major, and they clapped us in beaming, yeah. you know, literally beaming and, and delightful. So while the clapping and smiling has been going on, the Cabinet Secretary's run round the back corridor to be waiting for the new Prime Minister outside the Cabinet Room. And there's not a moment to spare, even for loved ones. Boris Johnson's former advisor, Will Walden. He spent, I think, about five or ten minutes with, with Carrie, who had been part of that group and they wanted to chat all sort of personal niceties go out of the window so if you imagine it how you have cabinet room prime minister's study where he was meeting with carrie and the outer office where all the staff are and basically the doors between all three were open and he's having this private moment with his then girlfriend about the, the fact he's become prime minister and literally people are walking through them the whole time and it's kind of like we haven't got time for this let's just sort of get on with life the stepping into the famous cabinet room could be an emotional moment. Tony Blair wrote in his memoirs that he pictured a thousand images fluttering through my mind of Disraeli and Gladstone and Asquith, Lloyd George and Churchill and every other great statesman who'd held court and power in this room. Yeah, I, I, I was, I mean, frightened is perhaps not the right word, but I was somewhat overawed, yeah. By tradition, while all the chairs around the cabinet table are neatly pushed in, the Prime Minister's seat is at an angle. It's also the only chair with arms to indicate seniority, or perhaps recognition of the moments when the only support they're getting in the room is from the furniture. The new Prime Minister sits. Waiting on the vast coffin-shaped table is bottled water, still and sparkling, and a small dish of mince. 
In those first hours and days, things quickly get serious. Really serious. There were briefings from defence and security chiefs on the latest terror alerts, global tensions and imminent threats. One of the first jobs is to write letters of last resort to the commanders of the UK's Trident submarines, giving targeting instructions, only to be opened in the event of a nuclear attack where communications with London have broken down. David Cameron. So you're briefed by a senior naval figure. They wheel this giant shredder into your office and then run through what the options potentially are or you could make up some of your own. They leave you with a whole set of different letters that you can adapt as you see fit. And then you shred all the ones you don't use so that nobody knows what you chose. And it is a moment where you just feel the full weight of the responsibility that you've taken on. I spoke to John Major and asked what he had um, done. You're not totally alone. You can seek advice and counsel. And then I shredded everything and, and sealed up my letter. But there was a rather comic moment that as I handed it over to the naval attaché, the envelope pinged open. And so there was a sort of sudden call for sellotape and Pritt stick. And, you know, so it was like even at this moment of great importance that things can still go wrong. The envelope you thought was only to be opened in the event of a nuclear attack pops open in front yes, of you. Yes, but that, that, and luckily, it was sealed up. Was and then actually I, I, I visited one of our Trident submarines. I was actually lowered from a helicopter onto a moving submarine and went down and met the crew and the, the, the captain and all the rest and then actually saw the safe where the letter of last resort is kept and that was a sort of reminder. But now mine are gone, so as soon as you leave office, your letters are shredded, uh, never to be revealed, and then the next Prime Minister does the same thing. Stuart Wood went into number 10 as a foreign policy advisor for Gordon Brown. I always think it's a particular kind of torture to make the first act of a Prime Minister, literally within 30 seconds, this extraordinarily dramatic act of handwritten notes only to be opened in the event of an apocalypse. It's not designed, I'm sure, to put the weight on your shoulders and to make you realise that it's, you know, you're no longer running Department of, of you know, Communities and Local Government, you're now Prime Minister or whatever it might be. But I think it must have that effect. So while things are calm but serious in the Cabinet room, outside all hell could be breaking loose as the PM's political team get to meet their new colleagues, tour their offices and try to grab the best desks. For aides and advisers, the first days will also mean detailed security checks for them, especially for those covering foreign affairs, defence and national security. The incoming team will also be warned against using their personal email addresses for government business and to be wary when travelling abroad to assume that foreign governments are always listening in. Sue Nye gave Brown's team some extra advice. Always carry your paperwork in a folder to avoid official documents being snapped by photographers waiting in Downing Street and never run Stuart Wood again. Never run is a very good bit of advice. If you're with, I was in, with the Prime Minister quite a lot travelling around the world. If you're caught on camera running, it looks like something's gone wrong. Still to come, how one advisor to Boris Johnson had to ignore the advice and run to a meeting or risk missing the sacking of key ministers. What happens when reshuffles go wrong and the phone starts ringing off the hook? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. But a new Prime Minister moves into number 10. It's not just a new office, but a new home. And for those with young children, living above the shop could be a blessing, allowing them to slope off for an hour to see their families. The Cameron children would often be seen in their pyjamas as dignitaries visited. I didn't think I was going to like it because I loved our family home in, in North Kensington and, and, and all of that. But actually, it, it's the, it does mean you see your children. So... Uh, you know, I could talk to them every morning before they went off on the school run. And Florence, of course, you know, was a baby for most of the time. She was born in 2010, so we had six years of her growing up in number 10. Um, and so I could, I could pop up in the middle of the day sometimes and just have five minutes with her to sort of escape from the madness of it all. Gordon Brown, by contrast, struggled to relax, as Stuart Wood remembers. Yes, he didn't enjoy living above the shop. And I don't think many prime ministers do, from what I can tell. Not that he spent much time there. The flat felt a little bit like a place you were staying in for a long weekend. With you had, had a few bags of Sainsbury's bags of milk and things, but it didn't feel like it was lived in. And and Gordon Brown in particular, it felt much more home in Scotland in Kirkcaldy, where he's from. Before relaxing, though, there's the small matter of putting together a government. If the updates on the state of the nation's security are sensitive, the details of the reshuffle require perhaps even higher levels of secrecy. Gus O'Donnell says a small office just off the cabinet room is used for the reshuffle. Mostly they're there, you, you, you need to make sure it's locked and you need to make sure that you can't have someone going in moving the names around, as it were. In comes a whiteboard with magnets to write people's names on. Gabby Burton says that in 2010, as the coalition government was being put together, disaster struck. I remember this great big whiteboard being dragged in and all the names were put on and then, then all the names, for some reason, the magnetic things stopped and, and all the names dropped off. We <laughs> were back to square one. I'm sure some people got different jobs. Both Theresa May and John Major were propelled into number 10 with such haste they'd given little thought to their top team. Gordon Brown, by contrast, had been planning it for months, perhaps years, right down to every junior minister in aid. In addition to the rather quaint idea of choosing the right person for each job, other considerations are also taken into account. In the new Labour years, it meant balancing Blairites and Brownites. The coalition had to have the right number of Tories and Lib Dems. In 2016, balancing Remainers and Leavers was seen as critical. Or perhaps not. Boris Johnson's reshuffle in 2019 was brutal. Only those who'd been loyal to him and the cause of Brexit survived in senior roles. Jeremy Hunt, who he beat for the leadership, turned down the job of Defence Secretary to return to the back benches. Traditionally, the sackings ahead of a reshuffle are carried out not in Downing Street, but the Prime Minister's more private Commons office in the Houses of Parliament. 
as Will Walden explains. That meant obviously moving him, security detail and the like. And the principal person that was supposed to be alongside him to do this was his sort of other de facto chief of staff, Eddie Lister. And uh, Eddie likes to chat with people and Eddie got left behind. So the principal person that needed to be in the room to help with the sackings was actually left on the street at the back of Downing Street because the police just said, we're not waiting for him. And I think he ran in the end. <laughs> and he's, he's not a young guy, Eddie. And he arrived breathless, I think, after the first minister had been sacked. Making key appointments didn't go much more smoothly. Boris had made some unwise promises to a lot of people. A lot of people thought they were maybe getting the same jobs and I think Jake Berry was an example of that. You know, Boris made a decision that the job that, that Jake wanted as then community secretary was given to someone else. And Jake did a thing which I think most ministers don't do. He fought his corner and he basically fought for his own mini department for about four hours. And we literally were having kind of negotiation in the cabinet room about uh, about Jake's role up until the point of, uh, of midnight. And I never thought on that day that the minister for the Northern Powerhouse would be the the reason the Prime Minister only went to bed at like quarter to one in the morning. Would-be ministers are brought into Downing Street either through the front door or via the cabinet office and they're left in a small waiting room just off the main entrance to number 10. In 2016, Katie Perrier was overseeing who'd got what job in Theresa May's first cabinet. And we had a, a moment when Boris did arrive and he said to me, you know what I've got, don't you? And I said, yes, but it's not for me to tell you or ask you or mention it. It's for the Prime Minister. So you just have to wait a little bit longer. Boris Johnson was then summoned to the Cabinet Room to be offered the job of Foreign Secretary before returning to a makeshift photographer's studio in a side office where portraits would be taken to mark the occasion. A slick operation then, but not perfect. We had a funny moment where, um, well, it probably wasn't funny for George Osborne. George walked past to come in and one of the members of the team said, can you just repeat that? Philip Hammond is the new Chancellor. And George heard it uh, as he walked past and just gave me a wink, which was, don't worry, I know, you know, I know what's coming, don't worry about it. At that point, people got shouted out a bit to say, you know, keep your voice down. This is, you know, confidential until so it's that, announced. That was technically the point that George Osborne found yeah. out, was because he overheard someone in the yeah. corridor. Yeah, George Osborne got fired via someone shouting in the corridor. In between appointing their top team, a new PM also has to keep popping out to take calls. The world and his wife want to offer congratulations. For new arrivals into Downing Street, Switch is about to change their lives. The Downing Street switchboard is staffed around the clock by a team of crack operatives able to get anyone on the phone from anywhere at a moment's notice. Vital when the leader of the free world is calling. Stuart Wood remembers the switchboard running hot for Gordon Brown. The next thing he did was to take a phone call from George Bush, who was the president at the time. And I was ushered into a downstairs uh, a room where I listened in to that conversation with four or five other people in a soundproof room. It was around this time that suddenly the grip of an intensely close and political team is loosened by the hand of the civil service, personified in Yes Prime Minister as the Sir Humphreys and Bernards. David Cameron again. So the phone is sort of almost hot in the hand of your Bernard, as it were, your private secretary, and it's usually, the, in my case, it was the President of the United States, Barack Obama, saying, uh, well done, David. He said, well done, congratulations, enjoy this moment. It's all downhill from here. Technology has obviously changed the role of Switch. John Major and Tony Blair didn't have a mobile phone. Gordon Brown was less of a stickler for process and would text and email at all hours. For Boris Johnson, the calls started coming even before we'd got in Downing Street. 
as Will Walton remembers. The morning was heavily disrupted because as Foreign Secretary, Boris had given his number to sort of every foreign minister and world leader there was when he was Foreign Secretary. And the result was, because he'd won, that the speech preparation was constantly interrupted by world leaders messaging him and texting him and ringing him to congratulate him before he'd actually taken office. And Gus O'Donnell says there'll be hundreds, if not thousands of calls, from friends and family. And these may be members of the extended family that the Prime Minister's forgotten all about, but <laughs> they may feel that now their third cousin twice removed has become Prime Minister, they really need to congratulate. So you've got to try and balance and understand you know, who are really the best friends, yeah. who are the people you, that should be getting through and who shouldn't. For some, a phone call is not enough. Gifts, many of them totally expensive, are dispatched. Anything worth more than £140 is seized by the Cabinet Office. And if the Prime Minister wants to keep it, they have to pay for it. In July 2017, Theresa May was sent shoes, clothes and makeup. She chose only to keep hosiery from a tights firm called Luxury Legs. Katie Perrier. Well, flowers and food, you know, it's perishable, so you have to kind of have them. But presents go into a side room never to be seen again. But um, flowers, I mean, at one point I walked into the private office. I mean, I feel for anybody that had hay fever because I walked in and said, you know, who died? There are just copious amounts of flowers from Tory donors or whatever it might be. Uh, all looking beautiful and lovely and, of course, uh, are all binned a week later. But uh, Jean May was pretty good at thanking people. And so she would always make sure that there was a good list of people that she could write to and say thank you for their very kind gift or, you know, lovely flowers. So um, I'm hoping they all got letters because that's how the machine should work. In 2019, Boris Johnson only paid to keep £305 worth of wine. The diary will already be filling up and it will be non-stop and baffling and relentless, as David Cameron recalls. One of the challenges is it is so multifaceted that you go from one minute you're making a serious statement in the House of Commons, the next minute you've got to make a jokey speech at a charity lunch, the next minute you're meeting the widow of someone who was served in... Afghanistan, then you're having a vital meeting about some issue that's suddenly come up. Then you've got a call with Vladimir Putin about what's happening in Syria. And you've got to be on top of your game for all of them. There's never a meeting you're in which you're not chairing. Uh, and that's what, um, you know, you can't sort of sit back. You can't think, and, oh, this isn't quite me, so I can, no, I can, I can duck out this way. on. And you have to keep changing from all of those aspects and try to do all of them well. Um, and that's one of the one of the one of the big big challenges. And so, like all good things, premierships come to an end. A new arrival in Downing Street means there has been a departure. Out with the old, and in with the new. And so it ends as it began, with letters. Most prime ministers leave their successor a note, knowing they are one of just a handful of people alive who know what the job is really like. Gordon Brown had a well-worn joke about this. He used to say that when you finish in your job and your successor is taking over, you hand them three envelopes. When there's a crisis, and there always is, they open the first letter and it says, blame your predecessor. And then the next time, the second one says, blame the statistics. And finally, the third envelope says, prepare three envelopes. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.